Hi, this is James Jokum, host of Webcomics Reviews and Interviews. Tonight we're discussing magic. So sit back, relax, and let the Geek Fest begin. I love manga and anime, don't get me wrong, but one of the things I consistently hate is the use of magic. It just seems that magic used in manga and anime tends to be used as a straightforward doisex machina. That is, it's the end-all, be-all, end-of-all arguments. You know, you want a conflict stopped? Call on the mage. You want the big bad dealt with once and for all? All you have to do is find the right spell. It just seems that rather than having a lot of fun and using it as a proper writing tool, it just seems to be used as something, you know, in pure combat sense without looking at the full ramifications of what it could be used. Think about this for a sec. How many anime fights have you seen where the big bad spellcaster starts playing around with all these really great growth spells and starts hitting, you know, animals and plants with it. And let's look at the plants there for a second. At the end of the fight, you have these tremendous vines running all over the place that were just simply used to attack the other person. You know, restrain them, bludgeon them, basically have spores go into their face and all this, that, and the other thing. In other words, you had a spellcaster who had total control over plants and all he was using for was to attack someone else. Maybe use it in his own self-defense, don't get me wrong. But the big bad thing here is that he's basically using it strictly in a combat sense. And think about that for a sec. I mean, seriously, think about the ramifications of being able to control plants. Especially as their growth and especially how they moved. I mean, straight up. Have you ever noticed how many anime have, you know, all these starving populations and there's a definite class difference and the lower classes tend to be in the shaft of all this. And so you have all this hunger and starvation and thirst and, you know, basically disenfranchisement of the lower classes going on. But if they really did have control over the plants, why aren't they using this to basically build up the farms? You know? Why not, instead of going straight into a combat thing, you use these big plant mages to go out and help, you know, go out and grow food. Which I know sounds a little boring, a little prosaic. Yeah, but why not? You know? It just uh, makes very little sense to me that you've got a culture that's based around magic and how powerful the magic users are, but at the same time, you're not using to advance your own culture. So there just seems to be something sort of off on that. This is opposed to if we go over to, say, more of a European-American style, where the magic system has actually been integrated into the culture. You know, you would have mages actually having no problem going out and, say, helping with plant growth to build better crops. You'd have clerics going in and using their healing magic to basically make people a little bit better as well as to help deal with plant and animal issues. You know, it just seems you've got a little bit more organic growth there. On top of that, if we start looking at the fantasy novels and we start looking at some of the better ones, we notice that magic is definitely not the end-all, be-all. Just look at how many how many problems uh, Gandalf had with it. Sure, the guy could let loose with a couple of fireballs, but that didn't mean he was going to win a fight against a good-sized group of orcs. Even when he was in the battle with the Balrog, there were still limitations on what he could and could not do. He did pretty good. Yeah, he ended up getting killed. 
and of course being subsequently brought back to life by the powers that be. But the bottom line is, is that his magic definitely had some serious limits, and he had to work within those limits. As opposed to, again, what we see in manga and anime, where the magic, even at the lower levels, is pretty scary when you start seeing what kind of powers levels get thrown around. And that's something that we as writers sort of need to have, you know, to be aware of. That is, we have access to this really great tool that can actually be used to develop these things of suspense and, you know, basically help build our plots. We just have to figure out how to tap into that. And we definitely have to get away from the anime manga version, which is just simply, hey, I've got this really cool magical ability. Let me see how many people I can kill with it. Or more interesting, how many people they can't kill with it. Again, as you bother anybody else, you can basically wipe the floor with an entire environmental area, but nobody in that environmental area actually gets hurt. Yeah, I guess it's supposed to be a kid's show, but still, the things that keep me up at night. So, let's sort of take a step back and start exploring how to make a ma- working magic system for your particular webcomic. There's going to be two questions that I'm not going to answer. I'm just going to suggest them, and it's something you as a writer need to think about. Consider it extra homework, if you will. Um, when you do develop your magic system, as I just pointed out, consider the cultural ramifications. That is, can your magic be used outside of just simply blowing stuff up? Yeah, I know it's not as much fun, but, you know, like you point out with the plant example, if you can control plants to defend and attack, why can't you use them to grow food for the populace? You know, why is everybody running around in rags and starving if you've got control over plants? And if you can do the same with animals, why aren't you building, you know, raising bigger, badder animals? For not only to help you defend the place, but also, you know, better food stock. And that's just one little aspect of it. Consider pretty much everything else. You know, the other thing, of course, obviously, would be considering the cultural ramifications. Well beyond basically just simply combat and warfare. Have some fun with it. The other part, of course, obviously, is that you also need to consider how your magic is going to fit into the culture itself. Obviously, if we're looking at European structure, the magic is going to be entirely different than, say, an Oriental version versus African or even Native American. But that's something you're going to have to figure out on your own. I'm just going to give you a lot of really great basic tools to play with, and I'll let you play around with you know, how it fits into the culture as well as how it changes the culture on your own. I'm going to hope you got the brains to figure it out, because straight up, I can't answer everything. Doesn't mean I'm not going to try, but you've got to do some of the work yourself, okay? So, when you're developing your magic system, you need to keep in mind a few simple basics. First off, try to keep everybody to a theme. It doesn't matter how basic or simple, complex that theme could possibly get, but try to keep them to some sort of coherent theme. You know, somebody who summons over somebody who plays with birds versus somebody who can do pretty much any magical spell out there. You should be using the magic as a character-building device more than it is a simple, you know, like I pointed out at the beginning of Deutsche Ex Machina. Magic shouldn't be used as the end-all, be-all, stopper-of-all arguments. Rather, it should be used as a device to help you build things up. 
if you go with a theme rather than a general mage, then you're going to basically be creating a really cool little character concept. And you, once you have that character concept, you can actually build on a lot of stuff from there. Personality types, that sort of thing. So whatever you start throwing in magic, definitely try to keep to some sort of theme. Keep in mind that you're going to want to balance power versus versatility. That is, if you've got a mage, you can do pretty much a little bit of everything. They're probably not going to be all that really powerful, you know. They might be able to throw off a fireball, but it's not really going to be as powerful as somebody who focuses on, in strictly on doing fireballs. In essence, you want to sort of balance the power versus versatility thing out just a little bit so that you can have somebody who's a jack of all trades, but remember that master of all a master of none writer that's usually attached to it. Sure, the guy can cast pretty much every spell in the known universe, but they're going to be a lot weaker than somebody who happens to specialize in that particular type of magic. You're also going to want to sort of debate the focus versus innate question. That is, how much of this is actual innate magical ability versus training and reliance on other things? You know, the wizard staff is pretty much the example here. Do wizards require an actual focus in order to cast their spells? It can be something as simple as having to say a word or make a particular gesture or obviously use some sort of focus. But if you go straight innate abilities, at that point you're taking off a lot of the limits and unless you throw some sort of theme onto it, yeah, you're going to want to throw some sort of focus and some sort of training onto it in order to make your wizards a little bit more interesting. Also, that limitation is also going to come in handy later on because it means that, you know, to become a really powerful wizard, you have to put the time in. You have to study. You have to practice. You actually have to go out and do things with it. You can't just simply go, hey, I picked up this really cool scroll of fireballs. Watch what I can do. You're going to find out real quick that if you allow somebody to simply cast lots of really powerful spells right at the beginning, you're going to paint yourself into a really small corner later on. And you should always be trying to figure out how to avoid that as much as absolutely possible. You're also going to want to define certain abilities that all your sorcerers have. Uh, the Conan does a really good job of this in that you can count on all the sorcerers to have a certain particular group of skills. For example, they have a thing called the Sorcerer's Battle, which is essentially a uh, battle of wills, and whoever loses the battle of wills tends to get weaker over time. You know, that can be, that's a really great extra ability because that means that instead of having these really nasty battles that destroy the entire countryside, you can have two sorcerers lock eyes, get into a power struggle, and eventually one of them is going to have to bow out. You know what I mean? Um, Crinan also emphasizes the lack of permanence. That is, if a, something bad happens to the sorcerer, something bad happens to a lot of his stuff as well. This is where we come in with the joke of the load-bearing wizard. You know, yes, you've got these wizards that build castles out of pure magic that are really, really cool, but as soon as the sorcerer dies, castle goes down, you know, you see all the crashing and the rumbling and all not good. You know, in essence, the Conan mages have particular inherent abilities and limitations that are applied across the board. And, of course, that helps to emphasize the general low magic nature of the Conan universe. 
which is actually pretty cool when you think about it. If, obviously, you're going to be going high fantasy, again, you're going to want to basically define what mages can and cannot do. Can they see other mages? Or, you know, can they get into fistfights really well? This is this is sort of where you start seeing the D&D version, where you start seeing, you know, really great combat skill versus no magic and no magical ability versus incredibly powerful spells, but has problems throwing a dagger halfway across the room. You know, you need to sort of ba- figure out where your balance is on your inherent abilities and go for it. And again, you want to try to do stuff that's going to basically build up your campaign world, so to speak. For example, if you've got a really high-level fantasy and you basically want you know, two mages to start crackling with power when they just simply start throwing magic missiles at each other, great. That is something that's visual. It gives the artist something to play with and it builds your world up in terms of defining exactly what magic can and cannot do. So, just have a little bit of fun with it, you know? Things you might want to also consider is that you might want to think more superhero and less actual fantasy. That is, this goes back to the whole theme concept. And think about this for a sec. What I'm basically saying is that each mage has particular a particular set of abilities that they can use. You know, if you've got the plant control mage, he can grow, manipulate, and otherwise make plants move. He can also have them do things that are within the... Yeah realm of limitations of plants you know if a plant for example has a really nasty spore attack the mage can actually take advantage of that and enhance it to as high a degree as he wants to if they have fire you know obviously they're going to have the ability to project flame they're going to probably be immune to flame and here's the fun part have an issue to cold that's the other flip side of all this. Is not only do you want to develop when you develop your themes and you develop your power set for your mages, you also want to throw in limitations, just like superhero would. The advantage of thinking in terms of a superhero rather than a true mage is that one, you're going to put a lot more limitations on what that mage can and cannot do, and on top of that, because you've got these limitations, he's going to be a much more accessible character to the readers. And that's ultimately a really good thing to have. You know, if you've got a mage who can basically pop out any spell any time, your readers aren't going to really think he's ever really in trouble. They're just going to try to figure out why he didn't throw some sort of magic into it. If you have somebody who has a theme and is limited to that theme, well, all of a sudden it makes a lot more sense why it was kept in the you know palace dungeon. Or there just simply wasn't anything he could affect personally. Or, you know, he couldn't manipulate anything with his hands. This is, again, sort of why you see a lot of fantasy games put the basic handcuff and gag on a limit on a lot of, of the wizards. It's a nice little limit. But when you start looking at more of superheroes and straight mages, you start having a little bit more fun with what they can and cannot do, and that only helps build character. Again, the whole accessibility thing. I mean, straight up. If I can basically do anything I want at any particular time, is anything, any kind of thing you do to build suspense actually going to come off as anything less than false? 
you know? If you have a mage with definite limitations on what he can and cannot do, then all of a sudden you can build suspense by putting him in a situation where these limitations apply. Going back to our fire mage, if he has a problem dealing with, say, cold temperatures, and if he needs some actual fire in the area to manipulate, or it can't be too cold, then hey, putting him in an arctic situation is going to be a lot more interesting all of a sudden than if he can basically summon fire no matter where or when he is. At that point, you can actually build suspense. Sort of cool, isn't it? So, something to keep in mind. Like I said, obviously you're going to want to try to maintain limits. It's just, I, I'm going to be emphasizing that a lot. You're also going to want to have them gain new spells as rarely as absolutely possible. Yeah, you're going to want them to gain spells over time, don't get me wrong. But, you know, if you have a mage who's constantly learning new spells and he's constantly using these spells, then again, you go back to the whole lack of potential suspense problem. On top of that, you don't really have... A, the spells should be used as a way to build the character up. Not only does it allow for advancement of the character, in other words, you can go from, say, being able to control little potted plants to going after sequoias, but this takes a while to build up to, that's cool. That's character advancement. If he basically starts right off the bat as being able to manipulate sequoias, yeah, you've got a problem. You know? You're going to want to basically use his rate of spell knowledge as a way to build the character. On top of that, if you've got a character who likes going after the weird stuff, well, all of a sudden you've got another way to build the character. You can have him go after weird spells. These are spells that may not seem to have an incredible effect, but are all sorts of fun. You know? The ability to brew a perfect pot of coffee. Actually, that'd be a really cool spell no matter what. So I think I'm going to have that as a default spell for all my mages from now on. But, the key here is, you want them to build up over time. And the best way to control that is to control access to spells. Basically, you don't want him picking up a new spell book of spells every time he goes into the dungeon. One, maybe two, sure. But, you know, have some fun with it. And, this is an important one, seriously avoid exceptions. Once you set a rule for magic in your universe, don't go back on it. You're going to have a lot of issues with Mary Sue characters if you keep allowing a thousand and one exceptions. On top of that, you're not exactly going to have an incredibly believable world. I mean, straight up, if every other person can ignore this, that, or the other limitation, then what's the point of putting those limitations in the first place? If it's just something you can discard whenever it's not convenient, that's not really a limitation, now is it? On top of that, this is going to start asking a lot of interesting questions like, why don't mages just simply do whatever they want? And, you know, once you figure out what your, what your full power set is, why don't you simply kill off all the other mages on the planet? Going back to our plant growth person, if that person realized that they have control over every kind of possible fauna, what's to prevent them from going up to a person or even just thinking about a person and thinking about the intestinal fauna inside their gut and using that against that person? Obviously, you've got to put some limitations in play and stick to those limitations at all possible. 
So, otherwise, you start be- asking a lot of interesting questions, like why is there not just like one mage and one mage only? You know, or why aren't mages a lot more powerful in your world than they already are? And trust me, a lot of mages are pretty powerful to begin with. So, don't allow any exceptions to any rule you've set up. Once you've set a rule, stick by it. Otherwise, not only are you going to take off, the, not only are you can take off your audience whenever those exceptions come to play. Especially if you've been taking all this time to create this really great system, and you've got this really great world that's based on those ex- limitations, and all of a sudden somebody's got an exception to those r- rules. Yeah, that person's going to be hunted down legitimately. If they aren't killed, they're going to eliminate pretty much everybody else at some point in time. So, yeah, just stick to your guns on stuff like that. Something you're going to want to debate at some point in time is the concept of magic schools. That is, again, if you got everything basically going into a theme then you're going to have people that are going to go, hey, your theme is sort of common with mine, and hey, that little Tyro over there, hey, he works with our theme too. You know, eventually you're going to get all these mages with relatively similar themes start organizing. We're not talking like schools like Hogwarts, which is a cool concept when you think about it in and of itself, but we're not looking at it. We're looking more at the D&D version of schools of magic, you know? The you've got the transmuters over here, you've got your diviners over there, and yeah, there's a little bit of crossover between the two, but let's get real, there's a lot of difference between somebody who's going after magic control of his shape and possibly the shape of others, versus somebody who's going after it to find information on objects or past history or even the future. You know, at some point you're going to want to really consider developing schools. And you can have a lot of flexibility with these. You can either go with schools of thought, you know, like the D&D version, diviners, transmuters, evokers, that sort of thing. You can even have, I mean, look at any last avatar. You know, you've got the fact that you've got all these different vendors that conveniently go into four different areas. You know, earth, fire, water, air. And that's, again, that's basically the school concept. You've got all these people with a similar theme that have decided to get together, educate each other, train each other, and basically learn a lot more about their particular area. Obviously, this is going to be throwing some interesting limits on there. You know, you've got people who are going to be diviners, they're probably not going to be too good at the transmutation magic. I mean, even look at uh, the various benders. You've got the water benders who are good at healing, and they're pretty much the only ones that do that. Versus, say, the air benders who can pretty much fly everywhere, and you've been able to build a martial arts based off earth and fire. So, some really great limitations once you start building up your schools. You're also going to think about if these schools have a particular personality. Again, going over to the last Avatar, you've got airbenders tend to be thoughtful and philosophical versus, say, how incredibly spontaneous and active and basically obnoxious the firebenders get versus how laconic and laid back and generally people you don't want to mess with are earthbenders. 
And of course, water benders tend to be a little bit on the flexible side. So, there's possibility that your schools could also reflect different personality types that happen to gather as well. Obviously, your different schools are also going to have different styles of organization. Again, notice the militaristic style of the firebenders, the priestly orders of the airbenders, you've got the tribal structure for the waterbenders, and of course you've got more of a, well, more of a standard medieval thing going on with your earthbenders. You know, you've got a particular type of bending, you've got a particular type of personality, and you've got a particular type of organization they prefer. That's cool. That helps build up your world. It also means that if somebody has a particular personality, odds are they're going to fit into a particular school. And that's going to help when you start trying to figure out how to deal things later on. So, you know, again, it's you're going to do all these things to help build your world up, and so you're going to want your magic system to represent that. Take advantage of it. I mean, it's a really cool little thing going on, you'd be ashamed not to take advantage of it. You're also going to want to debate spell books. And you're going to notice that pretty much anybody who deals with magic deals with spell books at some point. These spell books don't have to be these big dusty tomes that you stick into a backpack and consult every morning. They can be scrolls. Uh, they can be, you know, illustrations. They can be paintings. Uh, they can be pretty much anything. One system even uses pearls that have car- that are carved. You know. In short, anything that can carry a message can also be a spell book. But you're going to have to want to debate how much of of a thing spell books are in your world. Your two extremes are pretty much the European school of thought versus, well, let's just say the Avatar world. The Avatar world, you do have people that tend to learn spells from scrolls and from various papers. Uh, in fact, that's one of the one of the things you see in the first couple of episodes of the series. This is opposed to, say, the European school, where you've got these big, thick tombs of nothing but incredibly spells. You know, you can go either way. Again, as long as you basically allow there are certain limitations at play. You should be able to do pretty much anything you want with the school, the spell books. Just keep in mind they don't have to be spe- they don't have to be book books. They can be anything you want them to be. It' going to have to keep in mind, of course, that they do have limitations based on whatever form they have. And this is something that can be really good for you as a writer to basically play around with. Uh, what happens is to a wizard if his spell book, for example, goes up in a big burst of flames and he needs that in the morning to get his spells back (laughs) yeah he's going to be screwed Uh, some casters in that situation may find it wise to actually have backup spell books you know that's not a bad thing where they'll have a couple of their spells memorized at all times little things like that are little things you need to consider so and of course the big question is can you use a spell book as a scroll that is, if I've got a spell book, can I go to a spell and use it right off there without having to worry about actually you know, going through the memorization of it? In Dungeons & Dragons, the answer is yes, you can, but the scroll, the spell disappears from the spell book. So, 
that's just something you're going to, another aspect of spell books you're going to want to consider. You're also going to be wanting to look at magic items, because let's get real. Anytime you have a magical universe, you're going to have the dreaded magic item problem. You're going to have to figure out how common you want them and how, versus how rare you want them. It's just straight up, you're going to have to figure out how you how the magic items are created and how powerful they are. The basic advice I give, want to give you is keep your magic items focused and extremely focused. You don't want to have... I hate bringing up the biggest joke as far as fantasy weapons go, but the Sword of Omens from the Thundercats. Really cool weapon, don't get me wrong. But this thing is a serious plot device and a half. I mean, it gets bigger when danger threatens. It acts as a spotlight so you can actually say, Hey, I need help. Come here. You can actually use it as a flashlight on top of that. You can use it to see pretty much anything, anywhere. And we've even seen it go after tectonic plates. Yeah. That's what we call an unfocused magic item. You don't want those. Excalibur? Cool, you've got a sword that can cut through everything. Neat. Wand of Fireballs? Cool. You know, you're not going to be able to see it throw out ice shields, for example. It's going to have, you point it, fireballs pop out. Brilliant. That's the kind of magic items you want. You want to keep them as reasonably focused as you possibly can. Um, at the same time, you're going to want to divide the boat how powerful they usually are, how common they are, and how hard they are to make. Your obvious two extremes, again, are going to be Dungeons and Dragons versus some Asian realms. Um, D&D, all the magic items have a specific formula. As long as you can find the right items and the right spellcasters, you can, and you don't mind spending the right amount of gold, hey, you're good to go. You're going to have a lot of magic items relatively quickly. On the other hand, if they require really outlandish elements in order to be created, you know, the skin of a dragon, for example, yeah, you're going to have a lot of dragons not really wanting to be getting behind the concept of making magic items. So, yeah, you're not going to be seeing a whole lot of magic items. Uh, an interesting concept you might want to play around with is if you basically don't want to have formula for how you create magic items. And I mean, obviously I'm looking at Beyonce potions and that sort of thing because you definitely want to have some potions to play around with. But one interesting concept is that you can have an item that's become so... based on... Sorry, you have an item that has been around the person for so long that it actually ends up helping that person out in relatively subtle ways. So even though the magic item, for example, will cause the person to, say, heal a little bit faster or to think a little bit clearer or to act a little bit faster, it's subtle enough that they might be able to recognize that they have the magic item on it. But at the same time, you've got a little bit of a magic item that really just adds a little bit to the universe. And more importantly, it helps build a little bit of character because you've got this really cool magic item that actually epitomizes the person who carries it. So you've got somebody who's, say, a bureaucrat, they're going to have a stamp that can pretty much close off everything. Cool. That works. Or, better yet, how about a stamp that opens things up? You know? That person has mastered red tape to such a degree that they enter a situation 
they're going to be able to open other seals. Have a door problem? Stamp it, it opens. You know? Have a little bit of fun with it. And like I said, keep in mind it can help build up your world as well as build up your characters when you have these kind of magic items that show off neat little quirks that have a little bit of fun with it. So, and above all, really debate sentient weapons or what sentient anythings. The good news is that this allows you to have somebody of a voice from the past or if you have a character who just died, the character can still give advice to other people and it's legitimate. You know, the obvious example here is the dreaded talking sword that was based off Count Rudolph 17 centuries in the past and he's still being able to have some sort of effect in the present by talking to his various descendants. Cool. You know, just keep in mind, this gives you another character you're going to have to play with and another character you're going to have to develop and another character that can get really obnoxious really quick. You think you can shut them up by just putting them in their sheath? Yeah, that doesn't work as often as you think it does. And of course, this works for really good or really good evil items as well who have the power to actually, you know, overwhelm the person who tends to use them. And it's sort of interesting when you think about it. How often do you see a good item that forces people to do good? I mean, you see all these really evil items that tend to make people do all these really evil things and corrupt them and to basically make them worse people than they ever were, but do you ever really see a lot of good magic items that tend to have the exact opposite effect? And wouldn't it be cool to see more of them? Just something that I'm throwing out there. If you're going to have a sentient item or something that actually tends to think, keep in mind that it's going to have its own goals, it's going to try to make people do what, what those goals are, and, well, yes, it's going to get all sorts of interesting. So, I'm just going to back away slowly now. You're also going to be wanting to think about what happens if you have crossover elements. That is, if you have magic users and you have psionic people and you have martial artists and one of them is using uh, mana, one of them is using psionics, and one of them is using key abilities, well, here's where the fun question starts happening is how do those characters interact with each other in terms of their abilities? Sure, some of it's going to be pretty obvious. If I throw up a magical wall of ice as you're trying to chop down on it, then obviously whatever you do normally to ice is going to happen to that wall of ice. You know? What I'm sort of looking at is when you start dealing with magic, there are occasionally times when you'll show up things that allow you to manipulate magic itself. Uh, dispel magic is the obvious example here where you can have a spell that will basically negate any spell being cast. Well, what happens when somebody tries to use a key ability when you use your dispel magic? Or, will a shield against thought work against a telepath? This is obviously something you're going to have to think about yourself. But, because I can't really... See, the problem here is that things get really weird really quick when you start doing key versus mana versus psi. So, some people tend to do, they treat them all as the same basic force and go at it from there, and that's cool. You know? If you have something that protects you against magic, it's going to protect you against key as well. Other people rule the exact opposite. Just because it protects you against magic doesn't mean it's going to protect you against key. That's fine. You just have to figure out to what degree that limitations apply and keep in mind it's going to be plus and minus across the board. So, 
you know, if it protects you against magic and protects you against key, well, then that means that people who use key can't use anything against you as, just as well as nobody against magic, which means those really cool healing effects, yeah, no longer affect you. So, but keep in mind, they do have different power sources. And to a certain degree, you do have to allow it. They are going to be, have to treat it be different on some level. You know, if most martial arts, for example, you're going to obviously be something you develop through martial arts training. Uh, magic is training and exercise, specifically geared towards getting better at magic. And with psionic abilities, not only are you going to be doing training through use as well, but you're also going to be doing a lot more meditation than others. So, when you start developing those abilities, and if you decide to have a little bit of magic, a little bit of sign, a little bit of, shall we say, enhanced martial arts, yeah, Goku, we're looking at you. You're going to basically want to decide to what degree these guys all change and how they interact with each other. So, that's something you're definitely going to have to consider on your own. Uh, I hate bringing it up one more time, but Dungeons and Dragons actually does cover this concept in extensively in some of the psionics handbooks so that might be something you might want to look into so just another little wrinkle to worry about now party B was obviously at this point got to be going oh man it's going to suck developing a magic system for my world I can't really see why I'd want to do that well yeah there's actually a lot of reasons you want to have some sort of magic system for your world First off, it's going to be able to, like I keep pointing out, help you build up your world. Um, let's see, you have clerical versus magic. Versus, bah, that's a fun one. Basically, going back to D&D, yet again, you've got clerical versus regular magic. And yeah, there's some sort of crossover issues that you're going to have to deal with there. But what it basically means is that you've got the clergy that can have their particular group of spells, uh, healing, weather control, that sort of thing, versus magic, which is more of a general force out there that can be manipulated in a lot of different ways. Not only is that a difference between the magical versus the clerical thing, or magical versus divine, rather, but it also means that with the clerical, you can actually build up all these different little religions and throw a little bit of a spin on each one of those particular little religions. Because each one of them is going to be able to manipulate magic in its own little weird way. Obviously, someone's going to be doing healing a lot better than others. Some of them are going to be doing divinity a lot others. And a lot of them are going to be doing nature-based magics or that's or even dealing with esoteric stuff like time and travel. You know? Rather than being uh, strictly magical effects, these are going to be ways of expressing the divine will into the actual universe. And it allows you uh, to have a little bit of fun with the symbolism as well. Especially if you happen to have gods that have very definite portfolios, and all of a sudden you can see how their portfolios interact with the world. You know, if you've got the god of knowledge versus the god of trickster spirits, well, obviously that's a conflict because knowledge is trying to figure out everything, and tricksters are trying to keep some of this stuff secret. So, at that point, you've got a really neat little conflict and a nice little build on your world right there sort of cool. At the same time, you can actually have a lot more fun dividing into various cultures. Again, The Last Avatar, you know? Yeah, I know I'm getting the name wrong. 
should be last airbender. I know that somebody's going to nail me on that, but so I'm going to nail myself on it. So there. The key here is that each one of the various groups that bends a different element has a different personality type, and those are defined through their specific elements. So, again, here's where you can actually use your magic to actually build a world. Not only does it throw some limitations into it, but it builds the world rather nicely. On top of that, you're giving, you're not only having a little bit of fun with symbolism yourself, you know, you want to have some fun with people who are improvisational, spontaneous, and hot-tempered, make them fire people. Have some fun with it. They happen to be a little bit more, shall we say, in control of themselves, a little bit, you know, a little cool around people. Hey, there's your ice mages, you know? you can actually have a little bit of fun with the symbolism above and beyond the obvious what they do and just have some fun with it. You want to express the difference between people who are too loving versus people who are too filled with hate? Hey, devise a magic system each one of them uses and then put those systems into conflict. And with love, you can actually have some fun exploring it because there's a lot of different types of love. You know, you obviously you've got erotic love. You've got familial love you've got love for a nation each one of those could have their own separate little magic system so you can actually explore the symbolism between those different types of love so you can have some definite fun there and if you think you're going to be having fun well look at it from the writer's or the artist's perspective magic is actually sort of fun to draw and we're not just talking about the you know bright eyes or the black pupils, we're talking those fireballs can be a lot of fun to try. Or lightning bolts. Or, hey, atmospheric effects. Somebody's ticked off, nothing emphasizes that better than a good old cloud forming behind them. So, not only can you as a writer have some fun, but so can your artist. On top of that, if you really have some fun, you develop your mages to a certain degree, you can even have a forensic type of mage going around. Because obviously every type of mage will have their own little signature. It attaches itself to their magic. A forensic mage would obviously be able to tell what those different magics are and go at it from there. Which could, of course, have its own fun. I mean, could you see a webcomic developed around a forensic mage? Yeah, the CSI jokes alone sort of scare me. So scratch that idea, please. You know, these are just little things you can have with your magic system. The basic takeaway here is that you need to get away from the manga anime school of magic, which is, you know, I've got magic, you either are more powerful than I am, and you're going to blow me away, and we have a rock, paper, scissors type of moment, or it's strictly used for combat. Magic can be so much more. It can actually be used to build your world, not just destroy huge chunks of it. You can actually have some serious fun looking at the symbolism, how to build your characters, how to build your worlds. Your artist can have some fun doing all the weird stuff that magic entails. The bottom line here is, you need to go away from magic as strictly a well, a dice ex machina. It's not a sonic screwdriver, nor should it be used as such. Your mages should have some definite limitation to what they can and cannot do, but at the same time, they shouldn't exactly be pushovers either. It's up to you to figure out where the balance is, and to We'll have a lot of fun with it. And trust me, when you think out the ramifications of your magic, you're going to be going on to an entirely new level of storytelling.
you're no longer at the tournament style where it's just, you know, who has the most magic they can throw around and who can use it the best. After a little while, you're going to get really bored of just seeing who can cause the most damage to the other person without necessarily killing them. You're going to want to see why this culture developed this particular style of magic. And once you do that, yeah, you're going to hit an entirely new level of storytelling. And that's something you should definitely aspire to. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the Patreon page at patreon.com slash two sparrows, T-W-O. And you'll have access to some show notes, some mini podcasts that should help you inspire you to other types of storytelling, and basically anything else I tend to find fun and interesting. So, hope you'll subscribe, and I hope I've inspired you somehow. Have a good evening, and I'll talk to you later.